Amen. You can have a seat. I think that's the most standing we've ever done in one service. Thanks, Eddie. I'm not going to sing a solo or anything with this. It's, you know, sitting will kill you, so you're welcome for all the standing. What a special service already. I, I love to see these kids dancing over here. The, 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 the kids praise, uh, praise, what's it called? Praise kids that are leaving. They, uh, are dancing to this song which is all about doctrine and one of my professors in seminary wrote a book called Doctrine That Dances. And I think that's what we're talking about when we talk about the Apostles' Creed. I hope this has not been merely cold doctrine. I hope it's not an intellectual exercise that we've been walking through as we've been talking about these core doctrines of our faith. But my hope and my prayer is that these have been doctrines that come alive and dance within us as we embrace these rich, historic, orthodox truths that have been taught by church leaders since the time of the apostles at First Baptist Church in Jerusalem. It was, I'm sure it was a Baptist, they, they dunked by immersion, I'm sure it was a Baptist church. So I want to thank you all for going on this journey with us as a church. I don't know of any Baptist Church, uh, anywhere near here that's done something like this to walk through the creed for 12 weeks. Thanks for those of you who struggled. Maybe it challenged your traditional Baptistic tendencies in some way or another, but I hope it's been rich and rewarding for you as a congregation as we've been looking at these core doctrines. We will continue to say the creed occasionally. I hope that's okay with you, but I think it's important uh, as it binds us together. But we, we probably will do less standing next week, as uh, my guess. I'm not sure, like I said, I've ever been a part of a service that had both ordinances, Lord's Supper and baptism in it, but I think it's wholly appropriate today as we finish our series on the creed because these are the ordinances that mark the newness of life that comes through embracing these core doctrines of the faith and things that we believe like God the Father Almighty, his only Son whom he, we confess as Lord, the, the Holy Spirit who binds us into a family of saints, a holy communion, and finally our future hope, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, amen. Our text for today is kind of a long one, but it's a really exciting one. It kind of reads like an action adventure, so bear with us as we read through it. It's the clearest picture that we have in Scripture of what will happen to us at the end of the story. And I know before we read this, it, it may be kind of a foreign concept for you. Uh, let me preface our reading by setting it up. When we say that we believe in the resurrection of the body in the, the end of the creed, we're not talking about Jesus' resurrection. We're talking about our own resurrection. What we just sang in that song was, I believe in the resurrection when Jesus comes again, there will be a resurrection of the body. And if that freaks you out, my hope is that you will leave being hopeful and excited about the resurrection. I know the reality is that a lot of you here today have never heard of this doctrine of bodily resurrection before. You've never heard it preached in church, even though you may have been going to church your whole life. It's not anything new that I'm proposing today, okay? This is clear in Scripture as we're about to see. And it's an essential doctrine that we as a church have to reclaim if we are going to be people of hope, who hold out hope and healing to a world that desperately needs it. 
So let's stand one more time in honor of God's word today. It won't be just one more time, let's be honest. As I read about the resurrection of the dead from the word of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, the letter to the church in Corinth starting in verse 12. I would encourage you to listen with the ears of your heart this morning. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now skip down to verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. <laughs> I love Paul. What you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it as a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. There's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differing in, from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God 
nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, we, we talked about death before. We talked about uh, that Jesus died, that he actually died. And we talked about how death is, is the new taboo. You don't talk about death. It's not very uh, couth. It's not very polite or seemly to talk about death. But for Christians, when we talk about death, it's different. You know, death really is the worst thing in the world, isn't it? The Bible tells us that death is the power of sin. Death is the due penalty, the inevitable consequence for rebellion against a holy and perfect God. Justin just prayed that, that uh, thank God that while we are imperfect, God is perfect. And because God's perfect, death must be the consequence of sin and rebellion. Death is a destroyer. It's part of our lives, right? In, in our fallen world, death is an inevitable reality. It's a passage from this mortal life to the next, and it separates our bodies from our souls. It's a destroyer. Our bodies are how we function in this world, right? My body is the means by which I relate to this world and to the people in this world. Even standing with our bodies today is part of how we relate to God. Dr. Rowett asked us to stand in confirmation and support of Elliot's discipleship journey. We did that through our bodies. Our bodies are what allow us to make things, to go visit places, to experience the world through our senses, our God-given nerves and olfactory sensors and feeling receptors and taste buds all inform our brains about what is good and right and true in the world. Disembodied persons, a soul without a body, can't do much of anything. So what we've done in our, our self-made religions, our, our, our failed attempts, our puny, pathetic attempts at trying to make sense out of this world on our own, apart from God, is to try to soften death's curse by saying that we'll experience some kind of spiritual afterlife that will somehow be better than this current world. When someone dies, I, I often see, you know, posts on social media that say something like, heaven gained another angel, or they, they earned their wings or something. Is that what happens when we die? 
Is it like a Tom and Jerry cartoon where our soul just kind of floats up into the clouds and you sit on a fluffy cloud with a halo around your head and you get a harp and you just play that harp? That, that sounds kind of miserable to me. I, I, I like harps. Harps are cool. I'm a big fan of harps. It's a really tough instrument to use your ten fingers, pedals too, and I don't understand it. But I don't want to play a harp for like a whole week straight. I don't want to play a harp for a whole year straight, and I sure don't want to play a harp for the next 10,000 years straight. That sounds more like hell, honestly. Our culture is so confused about the truth of what happens when we die. You know, you know who Maria Shriver is? She married the, the governator, Arnold Schwarzenegger. She was the niece of John F. Kennedy. Uh, you know, I'm sure Ms. Shriver is a lovely person, but, but she is not the person that I would choose to teach my kids about heaven. But she has indeed written a best-selling book called What's Heaven? And the promo material on the back cover says, death eventually touches every family. And this treasure of a book, for people of all faiths, as if all faiths teach the same thing about heaven. For people of all faiths, is a starting point for parents who must talk about this difficult topic with their children. It shouldn't be difficult for Christians to talk about death, right? It shouldn't be such a hard thing that we only address when we have to. We should be sharing the, the hope of heaven with our children constantly. What should parents say when a loved one dies? How do they explain it while reassuring children? Heaven is a difficult subject. Really? I don't think it is. I think it's a wonderful subject. It's a difficult subject that always comes up at tough times. Why not at good times? Why don't we talk about heaven in the good times? And Maria Shriver has written a very special book precisely for these stressful moments. Shriver taught her family and will help teach yours how to come together, feel closer to one another, and experience peace. Wow. Who needs the Bible when we have resources like that? So the book is the story of a little girl whose great-grandmother dies, and she goes to her mom, and she says, Mom, what happened to great-grandmother? And her mom says, she's in heaven. And the little girl says, Mom, what's heaven? And, and here's the, the answer the mom gives. Heaven is somewhere you believe in, like a fantasy. It's a beautiful place where you can sit on soft clouds and talk to other people who are there. At night, you can sit next to the stars, which are the brightest of anywhere in the universe. If you're good throughout your life, then you get to go to heaven. Wow. You know what Jesus said about good people? There aren't any. Even him, he said, why do you call me good? For none are good except for God the Father. God is good. We all fall short in our sin. Then she says, when your life is finished here on earth, God sends angels down to take you up to heaven to be with him. The problem with this is that it's not real hope. It's an illusion that has been manufactured to tell our kids to make them feel better. And it's so far off from what scripture says from what the truth is. And, and Christianity, out of all of the man-made religions you know, in the world, out of all the other claims of truth in this world, 
Christianity alone holds out a promise of real hope to a fallen world that is now plagued by death. And that hope is not found in escaping our bodies and and going up to the clouds. You know, I actually, I I do, I like the old song, I'll Fly Away. I think it's a fun song. I've sung it, you know, loudly before in, in church, and it's a fun song, but it is not a hopeful song. If the best that we can hope for is just to get out of this terrible place so we can float around forever disembodied, what kind of hope is that? Where is justice in that? When will all the wrongs in this world be made right? Will will the wrong things in the world go unpunished forever? And after I die, does, does that mean that I'll never get to taste anything with my taste buds that's so delightful like a perfect red velvet cake? Does that mean that I'll never get to see something so beautiful as the sunset while you're swimming in the Gulf of Mexico and you see the sun go down in the water, it looks like? Why not get to ever experience the feeling of running and jumping and playing again? Will I not hear music like these kids did that makes me want to dance? I just can't control it. Well, for Christians, our hope is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, first and foremost. These things that I'm talking about are the things that life is made of. So what is our hope for life, real life after death, not some disembodied illusion? Our hope is found in the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. On that glorious Easter morning, Christ conquered death forever. He defeated the the power of sin by reversing the curse of death and sin and the law. From, From that point on, death works backwards. Death knows it's been defeated and its doom is sure. We know at the end of the story of everything ever in Revelation chapter 20, there's this lake of fire, right? And the last enemy to be destroyed is death, as we read in our text for today. And it says that Christ the King will take death and fling it into the lake of fire. Death itself will die at the end of the story. We know that is true. And it started, this hope that we have started with the resurrection of Jesus. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, he sealed death's death warrant. I love Andrew Peterson. You know, my favorite songwriter. I haven't quoted him in about a month, so I need to quote him here. His Easter album, Resurrection Letters, Volume 1, man, I encourage you just to listen to it and turn it up loud and sing at the top of your lungs. It starts out, the whole record starts out with these lines, his heart beats, his blood begins to flow, waking up what was dead a moment ago, and his heart beats. Now everything is changed because the blood that brought us peace with God is racing through his veins, and his heart beats. His heart beats. He breathes in. His living lungs expand. The heavy air surrounding death turns to breath again. He breathes out. He is word and flesh once more. The Lamb of God slain for us is a lion ready to roar. And his heart beats. He took one breath and put death to death. Where is your sting, O grave? How grave is your defeat? 
He rises, glorified in flesh, clothed in immortality, the firstborn from the dead. He rises and his work's already done. So he's resting as he rises to reclaim the bride he's won in his heartbeats. Do you see the connection between the resurrection of Jesus and 1 Corinthians 15? Our resurrection is only made possible because of Jesus' resurrection. Because Jesus rose, so will we. He was the first fruit we follow. And up until recently, this was standard teaching in the church. You know, Christians actually used to all be buried facing east. Why? They were anticipating the arrival of the Son of God back on the earth. They couldn't wait to rise to meet him. You know, on on tombstones until about the 1800s, it was common practice for Christians to have the inscription on the tombstone, the Latin word resurgam. You know what resurgam means? I will rise. It was an, an anticipation that their death was only a stopover. It was only a temporary rest until Jesus returns and they would rise. So what happens when we die? The Bible says that for Christians to be absent from the body, like death does and separates our soul from our body, is to be present with the Lord. Jesus told the repentant thief on the cross next to him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. That's normally what we call heaven, right? Paradise. This means that the souls of the saints who have been buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life, like Elliot Carpenos, Those souls are separated from their bodies at death, and they go to be with God, with Jesus in paradise, with those other souls of saints who have departed before them. And whether they're cremated or decomposed in the ground, they turn to dust. Their bodies turn to dust over the years. But that's not the end of the story. There's there's not a lot of hope in that story. Very rarely do you hear the word resurrection at a funeral. I try to always make sure I say it, always, because that's our hope. Even at most Christian funerals, you usually only hear about the soul of the departed now being in heaven, and that's true, and it, it does bring me some comfort and some hope, but it's not our ultimate hope. Heaven is not the final chapter. The book of Revelation gives us a glimpse of the true end of the story. Revelation 21, verse 1 John the Revelator writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Heaven passes away. Earth passes away. They're destroyed and remade. Into what? Into our final destination, the new heaven and new earth. When we talk about eternity in heaven, what we really mean and what we really should say is the new heaven and the new earth, the new creation. The Bible divides history into two parts, right? There's this present age, which is made up of earth and heaven, and there's the age to come, where there's a marriage between heaven and earth. They are destroyed and remade into one singular place, the new heaven and new earth, the new creation. 
And most of our false ideas on heaven come from the philosophy of Plato, the, the Greek philosopher from the fourth century BC. He taught that spirit is good and that material stuff is bad, it's evil. So to escape the material world would be the highest form of heaven. But that's not biblical at all. That's not the language that scripture uses to talk about heaven. The Bible talks about a redemptive ending where all things, physical things, in this material world and spiritual realm are made new. Old heaven, old earth pass away. There's a new physical creation that's like the first creation before sin wrecked it. And the new heaven and new earth where we will spend eternity is a material world. The Bible uses words like soil when it talks about new heaven and new earth. It talks about wine. It talks about vineyards. It talks about mountains, animals. For you animal lovers, it talks about animals. The lion will lay down with the lamb. The, 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 the leopard, right, shall lay down the, the wolf and the child, all those things. The snake and the baby. The final chapter of the whole story begins when Jesus breaks back into our world at the reckoning with a million angels behind him and announces, enough, no more sin. I've returned to make all the wrongs right and finish making all things new. And at that time, there will be a bodily resurrection of the saints. Souls will be reunited with bodies. Somehow, all the dust of the bodies of believers will be made new. It will be raised and restored to active, creative, physical lives, embodied lives with God and for God forever. This is all, I wish I had time to go through all the scriptures that support that, but I don't. Philippians 3 verse 20 reminds us of this hope that we are now waiting for. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself, including death. These new resurrected bodies won't be like our old bodies. I don't know about you guys, but the older I get, I worked in the yard all day yesterday. It was a beautiful day to be outside. But I, as I sat down last night, I told my wife, I'm not 18 anymore. <laughs> I, I hurt all over. How's that? That's not supposed to happen to me yet. In my head, I'm 20, but my body says, you're pushing 40, buddy. <laughs> These bodies are not fit for the new creation, but our new bodies will be. Our text for today told us that while our earthly bodies are wearing out and they're plagued by weakness and dishonor, our resurrected bodies will be raised in glory and in power. When C.S. Lewis talks about our present bodies and our new ones to come, he talks about riding a horse. When you first start to, to learn how to ride a horse, they start you off on some old you know, nearly, uh, you know, lame, nearly uh, very slow, very tame, you know, horse. And then once you're ready for it, they can trust you with an animal that can really gallop and jump. That's what our new bodies are going to be like. 
There's so much I could say about this amazing topic. This should be another 12-week series, but let me close with just a few key applications for us to learn from our passage. What does a bodily resurrection and a life everlasting mean for us today? It means a lot more than four things, but I'm going to give you four things. First, it means that this world matters. There's a time coming when this will all be made new, when God's sovereign rule, his perfect will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's where we're headed. That's our hope. The picture of the new creation that we get in Revelation 20 and 21 22 says that the new Jerusalem will come down here to be established in the new creation. That means we're probably going to spend eternity here. It won't look like this. It'll be made new, but it'll be here. Isn't that blow your mind today? It means that this world matters. Maybe if we're going to spend eternity here, maybe we should take care of this world. Maybe our hope is not to escape this world because that's just missing the point because we want to end up back here. Our hope is that heaven will come here. That's what we're waiting for. We wait our hope from heaven to come to earth and make his will be done here as it is in heaven. Let's work toward that end now. Our hope is that heaven will come here. Second, our bodies matter. We are embodied creatures, and that's not a bad thing. We're going to spend eternity in a body, actively worshiping, working. Yes, there'll be work in heaven, but it'll be redemptive. It'll feel really good, like when I trimmed my trees yesterday and said, ah, that looks good. It'll be thinking, communicating, enjoying activity, beauty, and, and people, and God, all in our glorious new resurrected bodies. Third, what we believe about death matters. What we say about death and resurrection gives shape and color to everything else. Real, robust Christian hope must be one that looks forward to the renewal of all things. Our hope is not found in escape. Our hope is found in redemption. We've got to remember that's true hope. Justice will prevail. False hope, you know, hope that involves a, a future of disembodied spiritual existence has no power to change and transform lives. It has no power to transform communities with the hope of resurrection and redemption and restoration. Fourth, finally, this hope that the new creation will be so much better than we could ever possibly ask or imagine is true. You know, our enjoyment of good things now on this earth, enjoyment of God, enjoyment of music, and enjoyment of amazing people that we get to meet, enjoyment of great books, our delight in good things will only increase in the new creation, and it will increase forever and ever, literally. You know, I get frustrated sometimes when I hear people say, oh, they'll definitely be golf in heaven, or there'll be golden retrievers in heaven or something. I get, I get frustrated with that, but it's not wrong. It's not wrong. Why? Be because the impulse is right, that all of our, our felt needs, all of our longings will be satisfied completely in heaven, in the new creation. No longing will go unmet in the new heaven and new earth. And the greatest desire that we will have is to be with Jesus. 
which is why it's so important to treasure him now, first and foremost. If you don't treasure Christ now, first and foremost, heaven may not be what you think. Jesus' physical presence with us in heaven, in the new creation, will be the greatest joy we could possibly know. And the Bible says, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 says, we will always be with the Lord. That is our hope. That is where we're headed. Let's hold on to that with all of our heart and hold that hope out to a dark world that desperately needs to hear. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that we are not left without hope, that we don't have to lie to our kids in order to make them feel better about death, but we can tell them the truth, that you have defeated death through your own death and resurrection, that we have nothing to fear, and that we are headed towards redemption of all things, the renewal of everything in this world, that all the wrongs will be put right, that you will break back into our world and set everything as it should be. God, we long for that. Our souls ache for that. We long to see your redemption. But if we don't, before we die, God, we know that our death will just be a stopover, a temporary experience on the way towards bodily resurrection. God, we know we will rise again, as we just sang in the creed, because you promised in your word that when you come back, that our souls will be reunited with our bodies, raised to, to live a glorious existence in new bodies, in a new creation, one that's physical. God, I thank you for this promise and this hope. May we live with that eager expectation and deep longing and hold that hope out to those who need to hear it the most. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.